We're continuing with our sermon series, Enjoying God. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this theme, and our aim in the series is to recognize that we were made by God and for God, to enjoy Him forever. God called us into existence at a certain point in history, 14th May 1956, 23rd of September 1971, 2nd of October 2004, but in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters and to enjoy that relationship with him, not just for the 70 or 80 or 90 plus years on earth, but for all eternity future. And in this series, we've had a look at a couple of ways in which we can begin to enjoy God right here and now. Enjoying God by practicing his presence, seeing him in creation, scheduling set times to focus on him. One of the ways that we looked at last time was the idea of spending an entire day with God. We looked at what the Bible calls the Sabbath day. And we saw how it is a day in which to stop, to rest, to delight, and to contemplate. We're going to continue with that theme again today, enjoying God through practicing Sabbath delight. Let me begin in the same way as we did last time, by painting a broad picture of what Sabbath day could look like in our lives And this comes from a book by Pastor John Mark Comer called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And he describes his own family's practice of Sabbath in this way. Just before sunset on Friday, we finish up all our to-do lists and homework and grocery shopping and responsibilities. We power down all our devices. We literally put them all in a box and stow it in a closet We gather around the table as a family, we open a bottle of wine, light some candles, read a psalm, pray, then we feast, and basically we don't stop feasting for the next 24 hours. It's the coma way, and I might add the Jesus way. We sleep in Saturday morning, drink coffee, read our Bibles, pray more, spend time together, talk, laugh. In summer, walk to the park. In winter, make a fire. Get lost in good novels on the couch. Cuddle, make love, nap. The Jews even have a name for the Sabbath nap, the Sabbath schluff. We schluff hard on Sabbath. Honestly, I spend a lot of time just sitting by the window, just being. It's like a less stressful Christmas every week. So again, that's where we're headed. I think many of us grew up with the idea that Sabbath was about rules and regulations, long lists of things that you could do and that you could not do on the Sabbath. Sabbath was not a joy or a delight. But to a large extent, we've swung to the other extreme where we don't practice Sabbath at all. And so in fact, we're still missing out on joy and delight. And God calls us to recover joy and delight by practicing the Sabbath. Last time we were together, we had a look at Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments and God's command to us to practice the Sabbath. 
I mentioned to you that God gives his people the Ten Commandments twice in their history. Uh, There's Exodus 20, just after God rescues them out of Egypt, and then in Deuteronomy chapter 5, 40 years later, just before the Israelites are about to enter the promised land after their 40 years of disobedience in the desert. And that's the passage that we're going to have a look at today, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. You'll notice that the commandment is the same, but the reason for keeping the commandment is different. Let's look. God says to us, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor the stranger within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. And this is God's word. I think it's so important to understand some of the background to this text. And the background is in fact stated for us in that last verse. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Now, these words are actually spoken to the children of the original group of people whom God brought out of Egypt. This is the first generation of Israelites who were born in freedom. Their parents had been slaves in Egypt. Their grandparents had been slaves. Their great-grandparents had been slaves. The Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. As one writer puts it, slaves to an empire that that had been devouring human beings, one brick, one pyramid, one edifice at a time for centuries. Egypt, like every empire since, was an economic system built on the backs of the oppressed. To get to the lavish, opulent luxury of a pharaoh, you need cheap labor. You need slaves grinding their bodies into the ground until there's nothing left but ash and dust. But God rescued his people out of this hopeless situation, and not because of their own initiative or their own goodness, or even because of the fact that they cry out to God. Quite the opposite, in fact. It seems that while the Israelites were in Egypt, they forgot about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they began to worship the gods of Egypt. Later in the book of Joshua, Joshua 24, Joshua speaks about the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt. We read at the, book of, at the beginning of the book of Exodus that the Israelites cry out in their distress, but it doesn't say that they cried out to God. No, the initiative is God's. God remembers his covenant with Abraham. He takes pity on his people. He sends Moses to them and he says, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you. 
A redemption was the price you paid to free a slave. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Through the ten plagues, God executes judgment on the gods of Egypt and shows that they are powerless. And remember that the Israelites experienced the first three plagues themselves in order to teach them that. And after warning the Egyptians again and again through these plagues, one night God goes throughout the land of Egypt and puts to death every firstborn son. There's a death in every home in Egypt, except that in the homes of the Israelites, it's the death of a lamb in place of the firstborn. God sees the blood of the lamb on the doorframe of those homes, and he passes over them, and he leads the people out of Egypt. And the Sabbath day then was actually a sign of this covenant between God and his people. I will be your God and you will be my people. You see, slaves don't get a Sabbath. They don't get a day off. Slaves work all day, every day, until they die. Only free people can celebrate Sabbath. Sabbath was a sign that the Israelites belonged to God. Now, what does all of this have to do with you and me who live 3,400 years after these events? Well, I hope you see some of the clear parallels between the Israelite story and our own story that we looked at in the very first sermon in this series from Ephesians 2. The Exodus, God's rescuing his people out of Egypt, was the salvation event of the Old Testament. But really, the exodus was just the curtain raiser, the warm-up lap, God's rolling up his sleeves and doing a practice run of his main act of salvation. He's redeeming the entire human race back to himself through the death of his son on the cross for the sin of the world. You see, you and I were dead in our sins, enslaved by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and doomed. We could do nothing to rescue ourselves. We were not looking for God. Quite the opposite. In fact, we were his enemies running away from him. But God redeemed us, not due to our own initiative or loveliness or good works, but because of his love and his mercy and his grace expressed to us in the death of our Lord Jesus. We too have experienced redemption And redemption is the reason given here in Deuteronomy as to why the Israelites are to practice the Sabbath. In Exodus, it's out of creation, that work-rest cycle. Here, though, the reason given is redemption. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Well, having looked at some of the background, let's move on and look at some of the purposes of this command as it relates to redemption. This act of practicing the Sabbath and remembering redemption did at least five things for the Israelites. And as we've seen, while our redemption is different, yet practicing Sabbath while remembering redemption will do a similar five things for us as well. Let's have a look. Firstly, practicing Sabbath is a way of rejecting false gods. 
It's important to remember that the fourth commandment comes after but reinforces the other three. Remember the first three? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You see, the constant temptation for the Israelites was to go after other gods to try and find satisfaction and fulfillment and purpose and meaning in things that were not God. And of course, that was a slap in the face for God. It was spiritual adultery, leaving God who had bound them to himself in love and going after worthless idols that couldn't save them anyway. We sometimes wonder to ourselves, how could the Israelites forget the God who saved them and go after idols of wood and stone? But as the great reformer John Calvin once pointed out, our own hearts are idol factories. We too keep on forgetting the God who has created us and saved us, and we go off and try and find a sense of purpose and meaning and enjoyment in other things or other people. And you know, work and earning and money and the ability to buy things so easily replaces God in our lives. Work is a good thing. It's God's good gift to us. God gave men and women work to do in the Garden of Eden before the fall. There seems to be tasks for us to do in heaven. Work is a good thing, but like anything in life, it can become an ultimate thing and therefore take the place of God in our lives. And so in his mercy, God gives us the Sabbath day and says, don't do any work on that day, not simply to give us the rest that we need, but in order to root out the idols of work and wealth and greed and consumerism in our lives. Linked to that, secondly, practicing Sabbath is an act of resistance. In his book, Pastor John Mark Comer points out that Egypt is still alive and well. He says, we live in a culture of more, a culture of gaping, unquenchable lust for everything. Lust for more food, more drink, more clothes, more devices, more apps, more things, more square footage, more experiences, more stamps on our passport, more. We have so much stuff that we don't need that like the Egyptians, we have to build our own supply cities. We call them storage units. It's one worth opening up at Howard Center. And he points out that just like Egypt, our society is built on the oppression of the poor. Maybe it's just a horrible coincidence, but when economists draw up a picture of our global economic system, they draw a pyramid. Some even call it the global wealth pyramid. And uh, here it is. At the top, you have 0.7% of the world's population who own 45.9% of the world's wealth. Rich people, people out there somewhere who have a car, own a computer, have more than one pair of shoes. And at the bottom, you have over 70% of the world's population that own only 2.7% 
of the world's wealth. And we still have slaves. There are 28 million slaves in the world today, more than were ever trafficked in the slave trade of the 18th century. It's quite probable that our homes are full of the stuff that they've produced. T-shirts, pairs of tackies, the clock on the wall. Many of them work seven days a week, 12 hours a day, in the sweltering heat of a factory in Vietnam or the cold of a cotton field in Uzbekistan just to survive, many against their will. Now, there are many things that we could do about that situation, but one of the things we could do is quite simple. We can just stop for one day. Stop earning. Stop shopping. Stop buying. Stop surfing. Stop consuming. Consciously stopping work for a day is one way of resisting this cultural wave of consumerism and greed. We swim against the tide, and we say in the words of Jesus, is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. To quote John Mark Comer one last time, Sabbath is an act of rebellion against Pharaoh and his empire. It's a way to stay free Make sure you never get sucked back into slavery, or worse, become the slave driver yourself. That's why there's that emphasis. Don't let your manservant or maidservant or anyone else work. Let them enjoy the rest that you yourself enjoy. Thirdly, in practicing Sabbath, we affirm our identity. You were slaves in Egypt. But, why do people work so hard? Why do so many people find it difficult to take time off from work? Well, part of the answer to that question is that we have come to define who we are in terms of our work. We define who we are in terms of what we do. If you meet someone for the first time, what is the second question they will ask you after they've got your name? What is it you do? Why do we ask that question? Because we rank people's importance in terms of what they do. The bank form says, state your occupation. The tra traffic officer wants to know the same thing. Tell us what you do, and we will know who you are and how to deal with you. And some of you know how terribly devastating it is to not have an occupation, or to have an occupation that is considered to be lower than everyone else's. I was effectively unemployed for four years here in Cape Town, and I came to dread that question, what is it you do? You know, well, I'm a house husband. Well, I'm Michelle's research assistant. Well, I'm, not, I'm a domestic worker. Uh, <laughs> Robert Fulgham is a writer, and he has lots of fun with the what do you do, do question. Uh, he's a Unitarian minister, minister, and in one of his books he writes this, well, so what is it you do? On an early morning flight to San Francisco, I told my seatmate that I was a janitor, thinking she might not want to pursue that and would leave me to read my book. When I think of how I have spent my life and how much of it involves cleaning and straightening and hauling trash, I don't get paid for it, but that's what I do. Anyhow, she was fascinated. 
turned out that she wrote a housewife's column for a small newspaper and was glad to spend the rest of the flight sharing her tips for tidy housekeeping with me. Now I know more about getting spots and stains out of rugs than I ever hoped to know. It turned out, too, that she was a member of the church where I was to speak on Sunday. I didn't know that until I stood up in the pulpit and saw her there in the third row. And it further turned out that she knew who I was all along, but was creative enough to think that if I wanted to go around on airplanes being a janitor, I probably had a reason. Another time, I was bumped into a first class on a flight to Thailand and was seated next to a very distinguished-looking Sikh gentleman. Lots of expensive jewelry, fine clothes, gold teeth. Probably a high-caste bazaar merchant, I thought. When he asked me the what-do-you-do question, I replied off the top of my head that I was a neurosurgeon. How wonderful, he said with delight. So am I. (laughs) And he was a real one. It took a while to unscramble things, and we had a wonderful conversation all the way to Bangkok, but for 10 seconds, the temptation to be deaf and dumb had been great. Filling in forms has led to similar situations. At my bank, I once wrote Prince in the blank for occupation. Just that morning, my wife had said to me, Fulgham, sometimes you are a real prince, and sometimes I am. And so when I I was feeling particularly princely, and so I wrote it in the blank, Prince. The clerk couldn't handle it, and we had a friendly argument right there in the bank. God commands us to stop work one day every week to remind ourselves of the truth that we're not slaves. Our identity does not lie in our occupation, in what we do or earn or achieve. Our primary identity lies in Christ. The Gettys sing a wonderful hymn, My worth is not in what I earn or in the strength of flesh and bone, but my worth is found in Christ at the cross. A member of my household who'd better remain nameless for the purpose of this illustration is writing exams at the moment. (laughs) And each day before she goes off to write, I pray with her. I thank God for the gifts and the talents that he's given her. I ask that God will give her peace and clarity of mind and the ability to concentrate and remember. I pray that she would have fun and rejoice in the good gifts that God has given her. And I pray that whether she gets 100% or 20%, she will know that her worth and value lies not in how well or how badly she has performed, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for her. Probably a bit heavy for a teenager on a Monday morning before her maths exam. But it's the truth. And folk, we desperately need to know this for ourselves, that God looks at us and says, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter. That's your identity, nothing else. And we need to remember this for others too. To my shame, I have to confess that all so often in my life, I've ranked people's importance in terms of what they do or what they have or what they could do for me. And I'm trying to make a conscious decision to give my fullest attention, my carefulest listening to the smallest people and the weakest people, to give them the same attention that I would to someone who I might think are more important than myself. 
Because according to Jesus, the smallest and the weakest people are, in fact, the most important. I encourage you then, this week, when you go into the Howard Center, go up to one of the cleaners and say, thank you. You are the reason this Howard Center is so beautiful. We appreciate what you do. I guarantee you that not only will it make that person's day, but it will radically change our own lives and relationships as well. Fourthly, practicing Sabbath as a witness to the world. Now, the Israelites were a holy nation set apart from the other nations of the world, set apart for God. It was very clearly obvious in the things that they did and the things that they ate, the things that they wore, and in their Sabbath day of rest. And in a similar way as the church, you and me, we're supposed to be different to the world around us. The Apostle Paul writes and he says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. One writer puts it like this. We serve as a sign of free people. Observing the Sabbath, we affirm to the world, God is the center and the source of our lives. He is the beginning, the middle, and the end of our existence. We trust God to provide and care for us. And finally, and most importantly of all, practicing Sabbath as a redeemed people involves celebrating and enjoying the Redeemer. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Once a year at the festival of Passover, the Israelites remembered that God had brought them out of Egypt. But once a week they celebrated, we are a free people. God has rescued us and that allows us to rest and not to work and to focus on him. We too are God's redeemed people. And so we practice Sabbath as a way of enjoying our Redeemer. I've pinched this sermon illustration from another pastor, and I've personalized it. Uh, But imagine the following scene. It's our wedding anniversary, and so that afternoon, I go out and I buy Michelle a big bunch of lilies, which are her favorite flowers. And when I get home, I do something different. I knock on the door, which makes her have to come out and open up for me. And when she opens the door, I take the flowers from behind my back and I present them to her and I say, happy anniversary, Michelle. And she's delighted. In fact, she begins to tear tear up and she says, these are lovely. They're magnificent. Why did you go to such trouble and expense? Imagine that I were to respond to her by saying, Well, it's my duty. I read it in a book. (laughs) This is what husbands are supposed to do. (laughs) Do you think that she'd be impressed? Of course not. If I were to sincerely answer, well, I couldn't help myself. In fact, I've got plans for this evening. Go back inside, get changed, because I'm taking us out for supper, because there's nothing I'd rather do than spend the evening with you. It would make me so happy. Sunday morning, we knock on the door of the church, as it were. God opens the door and says, how lovely to see you. How do we respond? Well, it's my duty. This is what Christians do. I read it in a book. 
Or do we say, nothing would make me happier than to meet with you here because I need you? If we're not delighting in God, we need to go back to the Bible and look at who he is and what he's done for us. It's there on every page. Just to take one of those pages, Psalm 95, the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. In particular, we need to keep on going back to what the Bible tells us took place on the cross, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And if we're still struggling to delight ourselves in the Lord, then we need to pray in the words of Ephesians chapter 3, that we might have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. See, Sabbath is not about a day. It's about a person whom we get to enjoy. As we saw last time, Jesus says to us, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I love the way in which the philosopher Dallas Willard defines Sabbath. Using the words of 1 Peter 5, he says that Sabbath is simply casting your cares upon him to find that in actual fact he cares for you which leaves us about three minutes to speak about how we practice Sabbath. Uh, let me do so re real quickly. La last time we said that it was actually very simple. We said that we should just make a list of all the things that give us delight. Delight in God's world, delight in our place in God's world, and supremely delight in God himself. And then we said just to pick one day in our week and focus on rest and worship. Let me just add a couple of other suggestions. These come from Pete Scazzero's work on Sabbath, and uh, we'll just list them. So, so number one, preparation. If I'm going to take one day to focus on God, it'll take a bit of preparation so that my Sabbath day is as uncluttered as possible. Doing the shopping in advance, doing some cooking in advance. Recognize your unique circumstances and your life stage, and feel free to experiment. As we say, said last time, worship and rest will look different for everyone, depending on whether you're a teenager, a retiree, a busy working person. Make some rules for yourself. And I, I hesitate to use the word rules. But simply ask and answer the question, what will make this Sabbath day different from business as usual, the other six days of the week? And what do I need to do or not do to protect my ability to rest and worship. So, for example, on Sabbath, I will mark the official start by lighting a candle and giving thanks. I'll spend intentional time listening to God in Scripture, prayer, and silence. 
I will enjoy the beautiful works of God's creation, either outdoors in nature or through art, music, drama, books, visual art, etc. On Sabbath, I will not look at Twitter or Facebook or read any work-related emails, try to catch up on household chores or errands that have been left undone. Find your own rules. Practice with them for a bit. See what works, see what doesn't work. Experiment. Have fun. You can't really get it wrong. <laughs> and then finally, find support. It would be really great if we could practice Sabbath together as a church family. Not all together, every Friday or Saturday or whatever day we choose, but just in our different homes um, and encouraging one another to say, well, how was your Sabbath day of rest? Uh, what, what did you do? How do you practice Sabbath? Maybe inviting a couple of folk to enjoy a Sabbath meal together one evening. Maybe we could do that together this coming Saturday. But just encouraging one another and spurring one another on in this regard. God's word comes to us again today. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. You were slaves in your trespasses and sin, without hope, without God in the world. And the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Let's pray together.